0: Thanks for tuning in. It was April 2013 in Norton Shores near Lake Michigan and the cold winter had just left the city and spring was slowly moving in. On the afternoon of Friday, April 26, Jessica Erringa, a petite and pretty 25-year-old single mother of a three-year-old boy, had just stopped to pick up some groceries before starting her 4.30pm shift at the Exxon gas station. A few hours later, at 740 that evening, a girlfriend stopped by to see Jessica. They spent time talking and their visit lasted for just over an hour. During that time, both Jessica's girlfriend and a male customer noticed that when Jessica went outside to change the receipt paper at one of the pumps, a bluish silver van pulled up and Jessica appeared to have a friendly conversation with the male driver. All seemed fine. But then at precisely 10.55pm, Mathilde recorded Jessica's last sale of the day. Then she vanished. Five minutes later at 11 p.m., an Exxon manager, along with her husband, were passing by on their motorcycles when she saw a van behind the Exxon station. Do a U-turn, pull behind the gas station, and turn its lights off. The manager noticed the store's rear security light was off, and she suspected Jessica of stealing from Exxon, so she and her husband turned around and pulled into the mall next door where they had a view of the gas station. The manager observed someone standing at the rear of the darkened van and noticed the back hatch was open. It appeared the person was attending to something in the back of the van, then they shut the door and drove off. The van drove past the manager and husband as he sat on their motorcycles, and they caught a quick glimpse of the driver and noted he appeared to have wavy hair and was wearing an orange or red sweatshirt. They followed the van on their motorcycles and noticed it was a silver crest of town and country with its logo on the back of the hatch door. They didn't see anyone else in the van, so when the van turned north, the manager and her husband turned south. Fifteen minutes later 11.10, a customer pulled up to the pump at Jessica's Exxon gas station, but the pump wasn't working, so the customer went into the store looking for a clerk to help him. Walking at his store, he ran into another customer who he briefly talked to before calling 911. Police arrived 15 minutes later. Officer searched the store but did not find Jessica. They entered the back room, neatly lined with boxes of cups, and noticed her purse and jacket were still there. They opened her purse and discovered $420 in cash. Officers noted that there didn't appear to be a struggle inside the store. Everything was in its place. They then searched the outside of the store and near the rear door noticed what appeared to be a 2 inch by 3 inch bloodstain on the cement. They noticed the back door did not have a handle on the outside. The only way to access the door would be from the inside of the store. They found remnants of what appeared to be a gun laser sight and bagged it into evidence. The store manager arrived to assist police and noted that the register had been prepared for the next day, which meant Jessica was getting the store ready to close. Within an hour, police brought in a K-19 to search for Jessica. They searched around the gas station. It was like she had disappeared into thin air. In the weeks and months afterwards, police continued their investigation. As reported in Michigan Live, the investigation would grow to involve a large investigative task force comprised of 15 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and 14 separate specialized units in aviation, behavioral science, technical services, intelligence, and analysis. At its peak, the investigation had 75 investigators with over 12,000 staff hours, Police had some persons of interest. 33 search warrants and 20 consensual searches were executed. The investigation included 12 ground searches and 2 underwater searches. But Jessica was still missing, and her case went cold. But she was not forgotten. On December 2, 2013, nine months after she had disappeared, a bill was announced in the Michigan House of Representatives titled Jessica's Law. The bill would require gas stations and convenience stores, that are open between 11 pm and 5 am to use security cameras or at least have two employees working 14 months after jessica disappeared a seemingly random and violent event occurred around 15 miles away from Downton township it was june 29 2014 and 36 year old mother and wife rebecca Bletch was jogging along a rural road when a couple driving by spotted her laying on the side of the road they thought she'd been hit by a car and called 911 when police survived, they noticed she had abrasions to her wrists and bruises around her eyes and discovered she had been shot. Rebecca was dead. There were no bullets found at the scene, but three shell casings were found. An autopsy would later find fragments from three bullets in her skull. There had been no witnesses to Rebecca's murder, and there were very few clues for police to go on, and despite their efforts, Rebecca's case went cold. That is, until an event almost two years later. On the morning of April 16, 2016, a 16-year-old girl whose name hasn't been released as she was a minor was walking home from a party when she became lost. She was upset and crying when a silver minivan pulled over and a man offered his cell phone to her. She climbed into his van, the driver locked the doors, rolled up the windows, and pulled out a gun. The quick-thinking girl jumped from the van while it was still moving and ran for help. As reported in the Detroit Free Press, Don Schmidt was drinking coffee on her deck around 9:15 a.m. when she heard the teen screaming for help and that he's got a gun. Don opened her door just enough to get the 16-year-old inside, took her into a bedroom, and locked the door and called 911. The teenager reported the details of her attempted kidnapping to the police, who went on the lookout for the silver minivan. Ten days later, police would get a break when they discovered a farm near the kidnapping site had security cameras. From the video, police were able to determine the make and model of the van and it led them to Jeffrey Willis. The team then identified Jeffrey in a police photo lineup. Jeffrey Willis was 46 years old and lived with his wife. Police discovered on the day of the attempted kidnapping she was out of town overnight attending a church function. A month later, on May 17th, Jeffrey was on his way home from work when police arrested him for the attempted kidnapping of the 16-year-old girl. Police then executed search warrants on his van and on his home. In the van, investigators found disturbing evidence of torture and sexual devices, including a toolbox containing handcuffs, rope chains, and sex toys. Prosecutors would later call it a rape kit. They also found leather wrist restraints and another lockbox contained a gun and ammunition which later turned out to be matched the gun casings and bullet fragments that had killed the female jocker two years earlier. This was the police's first big break in the baffling case of Rebecca's murder. Police theorize that Jeffrey tried to abduct Rebecca and when she resisted, he shot her in the head three times. In Jeffrey's home, investigators seized his computer and on its hard drive, they found explicit videos of young girls The videos had been taken of unsuspecting girls with a hidden camera in the bathroom of his home. Police also found videos that had been downloaded from the internet of women who were kidnapped and killed. They also found videos of necrophilia. Police found a folder on his hard drive that was very disturbing. It was labeled VIX, which could have been short for victims. In it, there was a folder with the initials of Jessica and Rebecca, including a code for the date of their deaths. However, forensics would later determine these folders were created after their deaths. Police found DNA on a pair of gloves and handcuffs in Jeffrey's van and tested and matched it to Rebecca. They did not find any of Jessica's DNA in the van. Remember that 2 inch by 3 inch blood spot on the cement at the rear of the Exxon gas station where Jessica disappeared in 2013? A forensic scientist was able to confirm that it was from Jessica. On May 25th, the month after the attempted kidnapping of the 16-year-old unnamed girl, Jeffrey Willis was charged with Rebecca Bletch's murder, along with eight counts of creating and downloading child sexually abusive material. Prosecutors later added three more charges for videotaping underage girls, increasing the charges to a total of 11. An odd twist in the case would arrive by the name of Kevin Bloom, Jeffrey's 47-year-old cousin who worked as a sergeant at a state prison. In mid-June, police interviewed Kevin, and he seemed eager to talk. He confessed he'd seen Jessica's nude and dead body in the basement of Jeffrey's grandfather's vacant house. Jeffrey's grandfather had passed away and left him his house on Bailey Street. Court records state that on April 27, 2013, Kevin stopped by the house because Jeffrey said that he had a woman there and there was a party. When Kevin arrived, he saw a female face down, hands out, and that he knew at that point in time she was dead. They wrapped her body in a plastic sheet, then laid her body on another plastic sheet in the back of Jeffrey's van. They drove a short distance away to a hole that was already dug, and the shovels were waiting for them. The police investigated the spot where Kevin said Jessica had been buried, but they didn't find her body or any evidence. Police no longer believe this part of Kevin's story, and he was charged with lying to police. On September 20th, he was found guilty and sentenced to time served. Only 96 days. But don't lose faith. An hour later police charged Kevin with being an accessory after the fact in the kidnapping and murder of Jessica and he was immediately returned to jail. Remember the gun police found in Jeffrey's van? It ended up belonging to a co-worker. When investigators interviewed her she claimed she'd kept the gun in a closet in her house and that Jeffrey had stolen the gun. She also claimed that at the time it disappeared it had a laser sight the same type police had found behind the gas station the night Jessica disappeared. Meanwhile, Jeffrey was in jail waiting for Rebecca's trial, prosecutors charged him with Jessica's kidnapping and murder. It was September 20, 2016, three and a half years since she had disappeared. And although her body had not been found, police theorized that Jeffrey had lured Jessica outside through the back door of the gas station, then using the stolen gun he hit her on the head, her blood dripped onto the cement as the parts from the shattered gun site flew off. Jeffrey then drove her to his grandfather's house and murdered her. Jeffrey pled not guilty. Soon after Jeffrey was charged with Rebecca's murder, his wife Charlene divorced him. She testified against him at the trial. It would come out that although they had been married for 13 years, they'd lived separate lives for the last half of their marriage. As Michigan Live reported, Jeffrey wrote his wife a letter after he was charged with the teenager's attempted kidnapping and was sitting in jail. It was later talked about the day Rebecca died and his wife would testify that she felt like he was planting memories, which she said was pointless because Rebecca died on a Sunday and Charlene's Sundays were very regimented with her church routine. On November 2, 2017, Jeffrey was found guilty of first-degree murder over Rebecca's death Rather than stay in the courtroom for a sentencing, he requested to leave and return to jail. The judge allowed him to as there was no law stating that he had to stay for sentencing or to listen to victim impact statements. As he left the courtroom, he turned to Rebecca's family and blew a kiss. Those in the courtroom were outraged. However, justice was served, and I love this part. According to Grand Rapids Legal News, the county sheriff ordered that the recorded victim impact statements be played in the police car transporting Jeffrey back to prison. They were played over and over five times. Jeffrey was later sentenced to life without parole. On November 26, 2017, Jeffrey's cousin Kevin pled guilty to being an accessory after the fact and was sentenced to time served, plus five years probation with the condition that he wear a GPS tracker for a year. This part of the case seems odd to me. The sentence doesn't fit the crime. He obviously knew something about Jessica's disappearance, yet police didn't have the evidence to tie him to her disappearance. Why did he talk to police? Had he stayed quiet, he likely would have gotten away with it. On the other hand, had he spoken up earlier when Jessica first disappeared, it likely would have saved Rebecca's life. Either way, it doesn't seem like he served enough time in jail. In May 2018, Jessica's trial began it's a rare event for a murder charge to be laid without a body for evidence. But as forensics and science improve, the courts are proceeding with these types of cases. Court records indicated that Jeffrey's cell phone records showed that he was at the Exxon gas station around 5 p.m. the day Jessica disappeared. And Jeffrey didn't deny it. He told investigators that he talked to her for a few minutes and left. Investigators also knew from eyewitness accounts and his credit card receipts that he visited the gas station at least 15 times in the nine months before Jessica disappeared. Court records would also show that police received a tip about Jeffrey and his van soon after Jessica disappeared. It was one of 1,500 tips. A week after the tip, police talked to Jeffrey. He told them he was home with his wife from 9.30 to 12.30. His cell phone records would later prove this to be a lie. During that time, phone calls were coming and going to his phone from a location determined to be his grandfather's house on Bailey Street. Phone records would also show that his phone wasn't used the day after Jessica disappeared between 12.05 a.m. and 3.47 p.m. and was likely turned off. Gerald McCarthy with the Michigan State Police testified about the videos found on Jeffrey's hard drive and that it was the largest collection of videos he had ever seen, including thousands of murder kidnapping, sexual assault, and rape. Prosecutor G.J. Helson told News 8 at Wood TV that investigators searched Willis' minivan in the days following Haringa's disappearance, but Jeffrey didn't raise any red flags at the time. They searched his van and his phone. They had an opportunity to talk to him and found nothing, and he added that they had to move on because they were following up on several hundred tips during that time in the investigation. As reported by News Channel 3, At the trial jurors were shown photographs of Jeffrey's vacant grandfather's house on Bailey Street. The one and a half story exterior looked welcoming with its wood cladding, white trim windows and scalloped trim front door. But inside they saw photos of a padlocked door leading to the basement. And inside the locked basement on the floor in the corner were nearly a dozen empty bottles of bleach and cleaner. Investigators also found a handwritten note thrown in with the garbage in the garage. The note contained a list of items, many of which were found by police in Jeffrey's rape kit in his van. On May 16, CBS News reported that jurors deliberated for only an hour and a half before finding Jeffrey Willis guilty of first-degree murder. In Michigan, that carried a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. A few days later, on May 23, Michigan's Governor Rick Snyder signed bill number HB 5407 to enact the Rebecca Bletch law that required convicted criminals to listen to the impact statements from the victims' friends and families. A year and a half later, on October 2019, there would be another twist. A Michigan State Police dive team conducted a search, but it didn't turn up Jessica's body. Police didn't release details as to what led them to search the water or why. As of this recording, Jessica has still not been found, but police are hopeful that one day she will be. Sadly, as of late 2019, Jessica's law has still not been passed. Small businesses are concerned about the costs associated with security cameras or additional staff. I imagine Jessica's family and friends would argue that her life was certainly worth more. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Murder Sherry Miller. Her husband, Bruce Miller, married her for love. Sherry married him for his money. Then she cold-heartedly manipulated her boyfriend into killing him. But he couldn't live with his guilt, and his voice would reach out to Sherry from the grave. If you are dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murder 20com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fastening studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe. Sleep with the lights on and don't blow strangers.